A couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 44, uh, beginning at verse 21. And remember, as we look at this particular passage, wherever you hear Israel or Jacob, we can substitute ourselves. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and Israel. He shows, and in Israel, he shows forth his glory. Father, we're thankful that as we meet together, your glory is revealed amongst us. Because the Spirit of God dwells within every believer. And Lord, we can have true fellowship and we can radiate the reality of Christ to one another as you dwell within us. We thank you that we can gather here in your name this morning, trusting you to give wisdom, to teach us from your word, because the word was inspired by God and is interpreted to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we trust in him to make the truth real and to help us to be molded by the word, that it will be like the chisel which shapes the image of stone. Father, I pray that you will bless the word as it's proclaimed this morning in the uh, worship service as well as in each Sunday school class. And I do pray for those uh, of our group that are not here this morning that your hand of strength and blessing will rest upon each one. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you may remember, uh, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'd like to read at verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It's enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Towards the end of David's reign, this is where we are. David has lived now as king over Israel for not quite 40 years yet. And here it is towards the end of his reign. And David yields again to the temptation of the evil one. In this case, to take personal pride in the empire which he ruled. To bask in the glory of all that he ruled, David sought to discover the military potential of his nation. He wanted bragging rights, as it were, amongst the nations. It's almost like when pastors gather together and they kind of quietly and, and as humbly as possible quiz each other on the size of their congregations, you know. David wants to be able to look in the eyes of the kings around him and basically infer to them that he is the greater ruler. 
Let's just for a minute again look at the empire that God has given David. That's kind of where the glitch is here. He's in effect usurping God's glory. David has an empire larger than, that, than Israel has ever known in its history before or after this moment. If you were to draw the borders of modern Israel, Israel of today, and of course we'd have to decide which time period we're going to talk about right in the last uh, 50 years, but let's take the current borders as they are today. Minus Gaza Strip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your, your border runs a little bit north of Akko here, and it runs up to include Abel and Dan, modern, modern border does. And then it comes roughly down the Jordan River to uh, the Sea of Galilee, we, Israel, modern Israel does possess this little piece of land right in here called the Golan Heights, right? This is part of the plat plateau of Bashan, according to the scripture. Uh, then you follow the border uh, right down the Jordan River to the Dead Sea, and then you follow the Dead Sea to its southern end, and then the Arabah, which is this uh, canyon, this uh, downfaulted area in which the Dead Sea and, and all of these other low-lying areas are located. You follow it all the way down to the Red Sea, and then you run a line, not, not on this red line, a little bit straighter than that, over here to the coast. And then you lop out, as Dennis was saying, the Gaza Strip over here. And also now, if you consider the West Bank to no longer be a part of Israel, but part of this new Palestinian state, you have, you have to take a big hunk out of, out of this part right up in here, this, this area right through here, because that's Samaria, uh, part of it anyway. Uh, so you're looking at an area about like so. And so when you add all of this territory all the way up here, and uh, the map goes clear to the Euphrates River up here, um, you, you've got an area that was ruled by David that is between two and three times larger than the modern state of Israel. Now, there was a short period of time, of course, you remember, back after the uh, 1967 war, when Israel was able to lay claim to the whole Sinai Peninsula. But that was just a transitory event. They didn't even possess it for 20 years, uh, the, the, the Sinai down here, until the agreements, you know, the... Camp David Accords and all that, and uh, Israel gave all that territory back. So, so David, compared to what Israel has been in its history, David ruled a large empire. This empire included parts of what are today other countries. For example, what is the country over here today? Jordan, okay, the country of Jordan. And in, in, in that day, what you had, of course, were the Ammonites here, as you see, the Moabites here, the Edomites down here, and you had further up in the north the Arameans. So in, in this area, which he possessed up in here all the way to the Euphrates River, what country is that? Syria. And then part of, I mean, you still see the coast here, Phoenicia. What, what is this country along the coast here today? Lebanon. Even part of Lebanon. So part of Jordan, part of Syria, part of Lebanon were all incorporated in the Davidic Empire, part of the modern states of those states uh, today. And so you can understand because Israel had been a tribal nation. Before Saul came along, it was just ruled by the, the, yeah, the judges, the, you know, the Shofatim. 
And these individuals were, were really nothing more than sort of like charismatic leaders that were raised up to, to guide the tribes through their territorial struggles and struggles with other neighboring tribes. So it's just consolidated into a centrally ruled nation, really under David. Because even under Saul, you're talking about a bit of a, still of a nomadic kind of kingdom for most of the people who lived in Israel. And Saul himself was nothing but an exalted tribal chieftain. But David is a true king in every sense of the word. So at that time, he could actually think of his empire as significant, even vis-a-vis -vis other kingdoms such as the Mesopotamian kingdoms over here and, and maybe even Egypt. Because Egypt went through its great eras of glory and power. You know, the old kingdom, middle kingdom, the new kingdom, and there were periods in between in which, um, in which Egypt was not a great power. In, in fact, at the time of David, Egypt was already in rapid decline. She had gone through what was called the new kingdom period. And by the time David comes on the scene, Egypt has really passed from being a great power and has already begun to crumble into uh, almost a thousand years of, um, of weakness. And, and so David had a lot to, quote, brag about in the human sense. And that's what Satan's tempting him to do. And what we're seeing here is God isn't going to tolerate that. And, and I guess it doesn't really need to be said, but sometimes I think we need to remind ourselves, God is not incensed that somebody else attempts to take his glory because he's jealous of that person, but because that person is, is, con is condemning himself to take the glory of God for himself. That's what happened to Satan. He wanted to be glorious like God, and, and it condemned him, and, and it destroyed him. And so, in, you remember in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, you don't need to turn there, but we read these words, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number his people. And you remember also that even Joab tried to dissuade him from doing this. No, David, don't do this. I, I hope you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are out there now. But don't do this. Now, if Joab saw that it was wrong, David had to be really blind because Joab was hardly a sensitive, godly man. When the census was completed, we discovered, as we looked at this two weeks ago, that God convicted David of his sin. And David, as David normally did, except in the case of Bathsheba, where he kind of drug it out, David repented. But his sin was so serious, the sin of, of usurping God's glory for himself. Isn't this great Israel which I have made, is implied here. And it was so public that the consequences could not be avoided. And so God sent the prophet Gad to him. And Gad said, let me read back in the 13th verse. Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall excuse me, return to him, God, who sent me. Now you'll look long and hard in Scripture before you'll find any other instance where God gave a person the opportunity to choose his medicine. God doesn't normally do that because God knows what's best and we don't. But God gave David this choice because, if nothing else, 
it drove the consequences deeper into David's heart. There was no option to argue that, oh, well, it was just coincidental that this plague came. No, he had to choose. He knew it was his responsibility. And by choosing this, he was condemning, as it were, thousands of people in his country to die. He, the king, the guilty man, is condemning these people to die because of his sin. In great distress, David chose the third option, three days of plague. Well, I don't know how long it was after David made the choice that the plague uh, broke out. I don't think it was very long. And it was some kind of virulent pestilence. Again, as we noted two weeks ago, nobody knows to this day what it was, but it was a rapid killer. It spread rapidly. It, read, it spread supernaturally. Because not even SARS can spread as rapidly as this stuff spread. Because if it all occurs within three days and kills 70,000, and as I mentioned last time, unless God was specifically saying by this, you counted all these people to discover your manpower. See how quickly I could wipe out your manpower. That only men did die. Unless that were true, you have to assume that if 70,000 men died, probably 70,000 women died too. And so it was a very deadly pestilence. Verse 16 of this particular passage seems to imply that God terminated the plague before it struck Jerusalem. Now, that could be because the, th the three-day uh, period for the plague was, was over. But I think, as we're going to read further in Scripture, that it becomes more clear that God stopped this plague because David, in obedience to God, performed the sacrifice that satisfied God's justice, and therefore he poured his mercy out, and he halted. Uh, where, if you remember the scenario, a great, great empire had formed over here in uh, Mesopotamia. In fact, the empire was centered on Nineveh, which wasn't built terribly far from Baghdad. Baghdad, of course, was built much, much later in time. Nineveh was the headquarters of the great Syrian Empire. Assyrian Empire, I'm sorry, with an A in front. Assyrian Empire. And one of the greatest rulers was Sennacherib. And Sennacherib set out to, to make sure that all of the territory within what he called his empire was in submission to him. And he found right over here in this area was a little tiny kingdom that was like a rock that wasn't willing to be assimilated into the greater Assyrian Empire. So he came over here and began the conquest of, of this empire, I mean of this little kingdom. And as he approached the city of Jerusalem, remember the, the great king Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and Isaiah brought him the message saying that the enemy would not conquer the city. And in 2 Kings 19.35, we read these words, And then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men, the leaders, rose in the early morning, behold, the whole army was dead. That has to be unique in history. Whenever can you point to a single time in history when an army of 185,000 men dropped dead one night? They had, you know, communal heart attack or whatever it was. And it wiped out the entire army. 185,000 guys. That's a lot of men. It had to be a miracle of the Lord. And it keeps reminding us that our lives are in His hands, right? 
And our very next breath, our very next heartbeat is His gift to us. It can stop at any moment that He so chooses. Now, angels are normally invisible, right? I don't know how many of you have seen angels. I mean, other than your wives. <laughs> but in this particular passage, we discover that the angel becomes quite visible. Now, why was David on the top of Mount Moriah? Well, I think a question we could ask is, how had he gone there? Had he gone to the top of Mount Moriah? Because he remembered that it was the site where Abraham had taken Isaac up there to sacrifice, and God had given a ram as a substitute for Isaac. Did David remember that? I really think so. Did he hope that God would thereby take him as a substitute for the nation? Well, that's at least implied in verse 17, which we read. Behold, it is I who have sinned, I who have done wrong. But these sheep, these, these thousands that are dying, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. He's offering himself to God as a substitute for his people. He had sinned. He had to choose the punishment, and now he is offering himself. In all these ways, he is acting in a Messiah-like manner. Except, of course, for the fact that he was actually guilty of sin, which, of course, Christ was not. But he was offering himself as a substitute here. David was interceding for his people. David didn't just go curl up in the corner of his palace and say, Oh, tell me when the three days are up. He was out trying to intercede to see if God in his mercy might not even let the plague run three full, whole, three whole full days. The parallel passage to this is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And let me read a couple of verses there. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, reading at verse 16. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord. Now notice, in 2 Samuel it just says he saw the angel of the Lord. Here it says, he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his, with his drawn sword in his hand stretched over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? O Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. David's sin had precipitated this judgment. Yet he demonstrates a true Christ-like character because he is offering to die in the place of his people. That's exactly what he's doing here. But notice as David went up to the top of Mount Moriah, he was not alone. The elders of the people of Israel were with him. In other words, his grand council, the uh, you know, Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Treasury and all those guys uh, were there as well. And what we discovered that is that they all had come to intercede because it says they were all dressed in sackcloth. You don't just run around in sackcloth. Well. Some people do in our society, you know, because they want to be different. But 
in that society, sackcloth had a very specific purpose. It was to denote humility and to prepare one to implore the Lord. So the picture here of the angel is a very powerful one. Can we even portray it? Can we see it in our mind? Probably not, because first thing that's going to pop into our mind is some image we've seen in art or, or maybe one of the cartoons or, or something which, which portrays an angel. But whereas 2 Samuel doesn't give us these details, it just says that when David went up to the threshing floor of Arona, he saw the angel. But 1 Chronicles tells us he saw the angel, and the angel was not standing on the earth, he was not up in heaven, he was in between. And I don't think it was a little speck up there. Oh, look at that little angel with that little bitty pin in his hand. You know, I think it was, you know. This huge image of a, I mean, what do angels normally look like as they're portrayed in Scripture? Well, sometimes they look just like people, but usually they're, they're brilliantly shining with the glory of God. And, and, and he had this sword held out, pointed southward towards the city of Jerusalem because the threshing floor of Arona was immediately north of the city. And, and, and here, so, so David is coming up from the city. He sees the angel. The angel is facing him with his sword in his direction. Now, you and I are, are, are used to possibly all of the modern uh, technology that goes into making movies and television shows, and so we can see Jurassic Park with what look like real dinosaurs running around, or we can fly around through space or whatever. But I don't care how much technology you've looked at. If you saw this scene, it would be absolutely awesome, <laughs> like nothing we had ever seen before, if we really witnessed the angel as David witnessed the angel. So it had a powerful impact on David and on the elders as well. Well, let's read on in 2 Samuel at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Arona looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arona went out and bowed to his, his face to the ground before the king. Then Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arona, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. The Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back. Apparently after seeing the angel and carrying out some intercession for his people, David had returned to Jerusalem. It wasn't a long trek. The evidence for this is in verse 18 where we find the prophet Gad going to David in Jerusalem and telling him to go up to the threshing floor of Arona to build an altar there. Now, 
I thought I had another map with me, but I must have pulled it out. Uh, but you, you see Jerusalem here, and you just see it as a little square right there. Jerusalem, if I could just draw it out over here, was, was just a very small little town running roughly north-south, slightly northeast by southwest, uh, on, on a hill, on a promontory called the Ophel. And it was uh, just a small place compared to modern Jerusalem, even though modern, modern old city Jerusalem, modern old city Jerusalem is about one square mile. Now, of course, modern Jerusalem, which includes the West Jerusalem and even East Jerusalem, the Arab part, is many, many, many times larger than that. It's a city of 350,000 today. But the city we're talking about would have been roughly eight acres. I don't know, some of you may own more than eight acres of land. You know, so you, you have some kind of an idea. It wasn't a big place. If you go north from the northern wall, the northern gate out of that city where David built, it is believed David built what's called the Milo, a, a tower in that end. If you go north from there, 1,500 feet, you would be at the threshing floor of Arona. Now, you would be climbing from the north end of, of Jerusalem that time to the area where the threshing floor would have been maybe 200 vertical feet difference. So you're going 1,500 feet out, climbing up about 200 feet. And, and you get the sense of this as you read this here because it says that David went up to the threshing floor and Arona looked down at David coming up, crossing over, as it were, crossing over. What you don't see, of course, in modern Jerusalem today are several of the uh, areas of topography that have all been filled in. Um, you still have the Cadron Valley, which runs down the east side and separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. But there was another valley that ran down through there, uh, separating Jerusalem at that time from modern Jerusalem. And even at the top, uh, between northern edge Jerusalem and the uh, threshing floor of Arona. So there was kind of a little dip in there. So crossing over, crossing over that dip and coming up. So that's the picture that you see here. Verse 19 makes it clear that Gad was the Lord's messenger here. Gad wasn't just coming up with this on his own because it says that David went up according to the word of Gad just as the Lord had commanded. So Gad was the Lord's messenger telling David what he ought to do if he really wants to intercede for his people. This is how to do it, David. You know, sometimes we want to do something from the Lord for the Lord, but are not willing to do it the way he wants it done or to do all that is required in order to do what the Lord wants done. David could have said, look, Gad, I can pray right here in my palace. Why should I go up there and buy a threshing floor and, and build a, an altar up there? Well, there's, a, again, a, the parallel passage give us a, gives us a little fuller picture of this. So if I go again to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and read at verse 18. We, we get a, 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 a kind of fills in what 2 Samuel does not include. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan 
turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was thrashing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then or David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself and let my lord the king also do what is good in his sight. See, I give the oxen for the bird offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But King David said to Arnon, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Arnon 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the burnt altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into the sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered a sacrifice there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the burnt offering, altar of burnt offering, were in the place of in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. You have to put them both together to get the whole picture of what's happening here. Gibeon is located right about up in here. It's north and slightly west of Jerusalem. Not too many miles away, five, six miles away. But it wasn't in Jerusalem. David had moved the ark to a tent right outside the city. But the tabernacle itself and the bronze altar of burnt offering was at Gibeon. And David couldn't go there because of the SARS epidemic. It says he couldn't go there because he feared the sword of the, the angel's sword. What, what does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple of things. First, he didn't go there because he was afraid if he went out there, he'd get the disease. Or secondly, he was petrified by the sword of the Lord uh, that the angel wielded, and he felt drawn to, to stay and deal with the situation there in Jerusalem. Now, you'll notice in this passage, Arona is not called Arona. It's called Ornan. Arona which was a Jebusite name, apparently meant Lord, as in suzerain or, you know, head honcho. But his Hebrew name was Ornan, which meant strong. He was obviously a person of, of considerable strength and personality, probably fairly wealthy, which is implied by this. He's going to give all this stuff to David. He's a, he's a very interesting man. It tells us here that which 2 Samuel does not tell us, that when he was up there, his four sons were with him and that they were threshing wheat and that they all saw the angel, not just David. But Ornan also, Orona also saw the angel and his sons and they went and hid. Doesn't say David hid. They hid themselves because they had been actually out there threshing wheat. Now, if they were actually out there threshing wheat, this probably means that we're looking at, what, midsummer? When this, when this is occurring, be about the time for threshing wheat. 
maybe a little bit later. Depends on the kind of wheat they were growing. <laughs> and so David approached the threshing floor and Arona went out to meet him. And the scripture tells us he did homage to his king. He's a Jebusite, but he is bowing before David as his king with his face to the ground. When Arona inquired as to the purpose of David's visit, David proclaimed that he desired to purchase the threshing floor in order to build an altar to the Lord so that the plague might be held back from the people. So he was building the altar to appease, not appease, but to, uh, to uh, convince the Lord of the seriousness of his purpose and of their genuineness of his intercession that the mercy of God might be poured out upon Israel. Now verse 16 told us, when we read that earlier, verse 16 in 2 Samuel chapter 24, told us that God put out his hand and told the angel to pull back the sword and stop the plague. Now, see, this is one of the issues that we have being typical Westerners. When we read, we like things always to go in chronological order. But sometimes in Hebrew, it, it'll tell you something ahead of time before it really happens in the chronological order of things. So what you have to do is insert into verse 16 this whole story about the building of the altar and the sacrifice and the burnt aroma, the aroma of the burnt offering going up to God. Why does Arona bow before David and why does he offer David all of these things? Well, he's a vassal. He sees David as his suzerain, as his lord. And he's a vassal to his Lord. And as such, he offers the threshing floor as a gift, which any good vassal would have done if he was a good vassal. But not only that, we told in this passage, he says to David, not only may you have the threshing floor, but here are the oxen that I am currently using to thresh the grain. You may use them for the sacrifice. And here are the sledges. These are wooden platforms about so wide and about so long that have stones embedded into the bottom of them and which are weighted down. Somebody might stand on the sledge or weights are put on it and then the, the animal draws it around and it crushes, it frees the grain from, it threshes the grain. When we were in Israel we saw examples of these sledges uh, in, in the museums um, there in the land. And he's offering them to be used for fuel. Now, put this in modern terms. The mo the, it's like the farmer saying, look, you can have my field, you can have my tractor, and you can have all my threshing equipment as well. I don't know a whole lot of farmers, but most farmers have one tractor, <laughs> one piece of threshing equipment. It's not like they have a fleet of them. Uh, I suppose these big factory farms might. But he's giving all that he's got at that moment. I mean, he's ending the threshing with his own animals and his own sledges because he's offering them all to be burned and destroyed as far as he is concerned. He may have been a Jebusite, but he's totally committed to his king. And he even makes the statement, which is in effect a prayer, that Yahweh would accept David and his sacrifice. I pray that the Lord will accept you. I think David was greatly honored 
by Arona's enthusiastic submission, but you'll notice he insists on paying for the threshing floor and for the sacrifices and for the sledges and for the grain for, for, for it all. He's going to pay for all of it. David is exhibiting what it means to be totally committed to the Lord his God. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God which cost me nothing. Which cost me nothing. As I read that, it reminds me of this passage in the first chapter of the Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, Malachi. Well, I have to do that since our pastor is, you know, always honoring the good fellows. Malachi 1.6 A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would, you, or he, would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among you who would shut the gates that you might not useless, uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you are profaning it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, as for its fruits, its food is to be despised. You also say, oh my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring an offering. Should I receive that from your hands, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my, my name is feared among the nations. <laughs> Obviously, the point is not that God is going to look down and say, well, you know, a sacrificial animal with one eye is, is worth less than a sacrificial animal with two eyes or uh, any of the other things. It's the, uh, it's the attitude of the giver that God is getting at here. The attitude of the giver. Are you willing to give me your best? It's the whole point of Abraham and Isaac being on the top of Mount Moriah. Was Abraham willing to give God his one and only son? That's the whole point of the Malachi thing. And, and Malachi is, is, God through Malachi is, is telling. I mean, you can get an idea what sacrifices must have been like in the day of Malachi, which is about 400 B.C. or so. What had Israel degenerated to? Oh, well, just give God whatever. It doesn't matter. It, who cares? I mean, just 
long as it doesn't cost us much. But David is proclaiming, I will not give to God a sacrifice that didn't cost me anything. Because that's not a sacrifice. You're not sacrificing if it doesn't cost anything. And that's what God wants from our hearts. The willingness to give Him our all. And not to hold back and not to just flippantly treat Him as if He's unimportant. Because as it says in Malachi, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. He is the king. I take a little exception at some of the popular songs that make God a God, you know, instead of the God. There is no other God, you know. Our God is a great God. <laughs> he is the great God. The Lord deserves nothing than the best we have to offer. Not because he needs anything we have. Did God need those oxen? He didn't need those oxen. But because he desires that we develop a Christ-like sacrificial attitude because Christ was willing to give it all, his life, for us. And that's what it means to be Christ-like. And that's what the point of this whole thing is. God did not hesitate to give his very best, his one and only son, to bring us salvation and eternal life. So why would we want to give anything less? It's as Paul says, and we so often repeat the, the verse, do we really think about it? In Romans 1, 12, 1, where he writes, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship, which is your spiritual service of worship, by insisting on paying for both the site and the animals and the wood, David was exhibiting the attitude of giving his best to God for his intercession. Did he also buy the land? Yes, he bought the land, and not only did he buy the threshing floor, he ended up buying the whole top of the mountain, as we'll see. And we'll also talk about why it says 50 shekels of silver in one and 600 shekels of gold in the other passage as the payment that David made. But we won't do that today. We'll do that next week.